I'm Michael Levitin, and this is episode 12 of The Tell. So I was raised with uh, what was supposed to be a realistic sense of fear, like I was only supposed to be afraid of things that reasonably might happen. So if I had a rash, I wasn't allowed to be scared of what it might be until I went to the doctor and the doctor told me it was gangrene or something. Um, you know, I was supposed to, you know, not live in a constant state of imagined fear and anxiety, um, which could have been great. I, unfortunately, I don't think I ended up with a realistic sense of what to be afraid of at all. Um, that there's sometimes incredibly dangerous things going on that I somehow miss and other times where I see danger that isn't there at all. So uh, one time I was walking down the street at night with this fan that I had just bought in a bag and I saw a dumpster covered in rats, like hundreds, maybe even thousands of rats. It was the most rats I'd ever seen in one place. And they were running all around the street and I freaked out with this fear that I would become enveloped by them <laughs> and eaten, which really wasn't even close to happening. Um, and I, I threw the fan into the rats, um, like a sacrifice to them, <laughs> um, but uh, and, and ran away. Uh, you know, I don't think that was really a very dangerous situation at all. It felt very dangerous. One time I got mugged and the guy had a knife and I, for some reason, decided that it seemed unlikely that he would stab me. And uh, in fact, it seemed much more likely that he would get caught and go to jail and that he was the one in danger and I became concerned for him. And so I tried to advise him about how to be a be better mugger so that he wouldn't get caught, um, which in retrospect was incredibly crazy and dangerous. So um, the stories in this episode uh, are from Roberta Calindrez and Edgar Oliver. Uh, and they both cover some pretty scary situations uh, where it's hard to tell if the fear is real or imagined. This is episode 12 of The Tell. In the beginning of 2015, I was about to... Um, I hate the word embark, but I was about to embark on a, on a kind of like transcontinental trip it started, I was going to go to Peru and do, like, uh, some volunteer work in Peru, and then I was going to go back to New York for a few days. And then I was going to travel with my uh, theater company, The Neo-Futurist, to um, India, where we were going to tour all around India. And then I was going to leave them, and I was going to go to Australia for a few weeks uh, to meet different people from the same company to tour a different show all around. And then I was going to go back to New York, and then I was going to start um, rehearsal on uh, the Broadway production of a show that I was, uh, was working on called Fun Home. Yeah, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, and, you know, I was just thrilled to be doing this because, like, you know, I have a great life or whatever, but this was, like, definitely, like, stepped it up. Anyway, so, like, I, I go, and I'm there. I've, like, gone to Peru, and I'm, like, in India, and it's, you know, kind of... You know, it's 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 an astonishing place. Like it's it's really you know beyond anything you can imagine. Like go and uh, I'm in Goa, which is like the last city that we're we're in, and it's the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I've discovered like this is my happy place in the world, which is also mind blowing to me because before that I thought it was like Coney Island. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm, I'm just like. Aside from the happiest I've ever been, like I'm tr the truly most present I've ever been, and not like in a hashtag kind of way, like but actually just like, <laughs> like nothing mattered to me in the world except working and doing this and being with my friends doing the show and like being in the uh, the ocean and shit. You know, like I had like technology with me checking Instagram here and there at night, 
but I didn't give a fuck. Like, I didn't care about any one of my friends, really. I was like, I miss you, and I didn't mean it. But, like, um, so it's, like, the last night of the show, we're done, and, and everyone was going to go um, back to New York, and I was basically going to, like, defect and go to Australia. You know, I had a pee or something during the dinner, and I, I was walking to the restroom, and I'm in the lobby, and my phone buzzes. It's from Air India, which I'm like, that's crazy. Like, my flight isn't for two days. And I look at the email, and the email's basically like, get your shit together. You have four hours to check in for your flight. And I'm like, oh, I have to go. So, like, I, I pack all my bags. And, like, my friends, you know, I'm, like, walking, and I'm like, I, I twist. I have to leave. I'm, like, drunk as shit, so I'm like, fucked and I'm like running through the airport in New Delhi sweating and like they're changing the gate on me and this is like a huge airport and I get to the gate like freaking out you know and I'm like they're gonna close the gates I mean and I get there and the the chick at the counter is like chill out we're delayed it's gonna be like 45 minutes and I'm like oh okay so I like get some breakfast or and coffee and do my thing uh and I and I go back and two hours go by and I'm like well that sucks like yeah, I have a connection once I get to Sydney. But I'm like, that's fine. And then two more hours go by. It's like four hours. And they're like, sorry, um, why don't we treat you guys to some food? And so they, they treat the entire gate to like a restaurant buffet, which is unheard of. And I should have known something was wrong right that moment. But like, so we have dinner or lunch or whatever. And it's been like five hours. And I go back to the gate and... They're like, sorry, it's maybe going to be two more hours. And, they, and then they're like, why don't you eat again? So they <laughs> treat us to another meal at the same place. So everyone's back at the gate now. It's been like eight hours. Everyone's pissed. Like, the energy is n negative at this point. <laughs> and it's gone from, like, being, like, you know, like, worried to, like, like, people are fucking yelling at each other and, like, harassing the guy at the counter. And I, and I kind of noticed my environment. And I realized that, like, aside from me, there's four other women at my gate. And they're all, like, you know, a couple feet away reading their magazines and, like, like hey, girl, to me. And I'm like, hey, what's up, bitches? You know, like, whatever. It's, like, solidarity. <laughs> and aside from us, it's all dudes. Like, this many dudes. Not just dudes, but big, burly, tall, like, strong, like, jock Indian men. And I'm like kind of blown away because my threshold for large amounts of dick in one space is like very low but like <laughs> I'm like oh and like the energy is super like stadium people are just like pissed there's like trash you know like it's like bananas and I I'm like I am not about to let this fuck with my bliss which for the, <laughs> for the record like that's not something I've ever said before that moment <laughs> <laughs> and not something I've said since. Um, so, like, whatever. I, like, do, <laughs> like, what every millennial does in a crisis, and I pull out all my technological devices, and, like, I have, like, my digital camera, which my roommates let me borrow, and I'm uploading all my photos onto this laptop. I'm still wearing my badge because, like, I drunkenly fled Goa, so I have the same shit that I was wearing th th through this festival, and I'm, like, listening to the sounds of the ocean and birds and shit, and... Uh, like, I'm scrolling through my photos on my iPhone, and I'm, like, journaling with, like, like my black moleskin journal, and I'm, like, I'm so lucky to be alive. <laughs> like, life is so good. I'm so present. And then I hear, you, American journalist. And I'm, like, oh, cool, where? 
and I like turn and the guy's talking to me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not a journalist. I can see how you would think that. I'm not a journalist. I'm, fun fact, I wasn't even born in America. Like, I'm not, an American, I'm not an American journalist. And he's like, come with me. And I'm like, okay. Like, it didn't sound like there was an option. So I was like, okay. And like, I <laughs> like, get all my shit and I go with him. And what, what basically, like, in my bliss had I ignored was that there was like the beginnings of a riot happening. And so, like, I'm in gate 19, right? So, like, the people of gate 19 have had enough. It's been, like, nine hours, and, like, they're done. They've harassed this employee as much as they can. And so they've, someone, like, noticed that, like, across the hall at gate 18, all the flights have been going out all day willy-nilly, like they do in airports. And, like, so the people of gate 19, like, march over to gate 18. And I realized in that moment, like, I've been summoned to, uh, like, record all of this and with my technological devices. And so, like, next thing I know, I'm sitting on the dude's shoulders <laughs> and I'm recording. Uh, I also am, like, a Luddite. Like, I don't know how to work this camera, but <laughs> I am basically, like, <laughs> they... They'd, these, these guys at this counter have like no idea what the fuck is going on, but they're like, the people of gate 19 are like, bring me the Air India officials. And like one by one, like all these officials are coming to the gate and they're, they were making them, like they were bullying them into like looking at the camera, which is me. And they were saying like, my name is so, by the way, this is all in like 22 official Indian languages, none of which I speak. <laughs> but I'm just like, fuck, you know. <laughs> Anyway, so like the, you know, they're like, hi, my name is so-and-so, I work with Air India, and I can't do my job. Hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm with Air India, and I am inept. Hi, I'm so-and-so, and they're like standing in a line, like waiting to go, like, like it's fucking graduation. And like, whatever, I'm like, cool. <laughs> so I record all of it, and then like, they're done doing that, so there's nothing left to do, and like, they're, like there's, like, it's, it's fucking chaos. Like, I, I'm laughing, but this was kind of scary in a way that, like, you know, when you're in a surreal situation, you're like, this is fucking awesome, but, like, I wish this wasn't me. And, like, so, you know, they've run through all the employees, and then the guy that was basically the ringleader of Gate 19, he's like, he's like, fuck this! And he, like, breaks through security and gets onto the plane at Gate 18. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. The, the plane is already boarded, like, fully boarded. It's a double-decker plane, and it's, it says bound, like, destination Dubai. And the guy gets on there, and everybody's like, yeah, fuck yeah, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, this is, what's going to happen now, you know? And then I'm like, what is he doing? Like, that's going, he's so upset he's going to go to Dubai with an idiot. Like, whatever. And then basically everyone starts, <laughs> like, everyone stops, starts coming off the plane. Like, everyone's got their, like, luggage, and they're, like, confused. Like, what's going on? You know, like, only greeted by, like, the people of Gate 19 who are like, yeah, 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 you know. It's, like, fucking hairy. And then, like, they're all out of the plane. I'm still like, this is insane, man. And then, like, they're, and the, like, once they're all out, the guy, the leader, comes off the plane. He's like, yeah, like fucking Les Mis or some shit. He's like, yeah, come on. And then everyone starts to get on the plane from gate 19. And I'm like, 
this this is no like this this I'm and they're like yelling at me pushing me I'm like inching towards the plane like this can't happen this cannot happen like I like also like no one in the world knows where I am and everything that's like my feelings and opinions of my life are on my person and they're about to be like in the ocean next to my dead body if I get on this flight like this is it the four ladies materialize and they're like they're just this is a standard day for them they're like you coming you know I'm like okay so like I don't know I'm on the flight I'm on the plane I'm like you know, I, I, I like to think that I'm, like, the kind of person that can handle pressure. I'm not. Um, I'm, like, not well. I'm, like, I'm, like, projectile crying and, like, freaking out. I'm, like, making eye contact with the pilot who's looking at me, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this, you know, like, he can't believe it. Again, this is a double-decker flight that was bound for Dubai, which is half the distance to where we're supposed to be going. Like, we don't have fuel. And, like... I'm just thinking, like, my fucking parents are going to be watching the news and be like, oh, did you hear that? Oh, that's so tragic about that plane that crashed. Like, that sucks. And then, like, two days later, they, they're going to get a phone call, like, we think your daughter was there. Anyway, so I'm, like, not well. So, I, yeah, I, like, the plane takes off, and I'm just white-knuckling, just, like, crying. Everyone's totally excited, like... <laughs> And I'm just, I've not spoken a word of English to anyone all day. I'm just like, <laughs> you know, like, not okay. And it must have been like a combination of like the, I don't know, physical trauma of like crying and sweating out all my bodily fluids and like the emotional trauma of like um, hijacking a plane. But <laughs> like I dealt with it by falling asleep. <laughs> I passed out. <laughs> it was like a 12-hour flight. I have no idea when or how long I was asleep, but I passed out. And I woke up to, like, like cheering, you know, which is like, woo! And, like, I'm Latin American. That's, like, part of flying is cheering when you land. You know, like, you land anywhere. And Latin Americans, like, ya llegamos, que lindo. You know, whatever. It's, like, fine. This was, like, not that. This was, like, woo! Like, they had done it themselves. Like, and, like, you know, like, and, and on top of that, it's, like, you know when you land and there's, like, you know, it's, like, woo, we landed. And then it's, like, the 15 minutes of, like, waiting to, like, be let off the plane. This was landing, yelling, cheering, chest bumping, like, and off the plane, like, and everyone's just, like, woo! And I'm, like, <laughs> like, fucked. Like, cry I didn't know I had it, tears it left in my body, but I'm just, like, I am in disbelief. Like, I can't believe I'm alive. I'm, like, touching my face and shit and leaning on it like a trash can. And uh, everyone's just, like, cheering still and, like, everyone, like, disappears. And I hear in perfect English someone say something like, well, I hope it was worth it. And I'm like... And I look, and it's one of the four fucking women talking to another one of the four fucking women. And I was just like excuse me, like, what, like, what, what, and she was, what did, what, what did, what did I miss, and she was just like, well, I just, I hope they make it in time, and I was like, to the fuck what, and she's like, don't you know, it's the final to the World Cup of Cricket, <laughs> India versus Pakistan, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me, this was all for sports. <laughs> Thank you.
I'd like to tell you a story from my childhood. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, with my mother and my sister Helen in a house surrounded by beautiful old trees. One day, I think I was around 11, so Helen was 12. We were all three sitting on the back porch eating watermelon. Helen and I were having fun spitting watermelon seeds over the railing. We grew inspired by the many watermelon seeds and we began planting them all over the backyard, uh, digging holes in the dirt with kitchen spoons and pouring in watermelon seeds and then covering up the holes, thinking that in the fecund earth of Savannah, watermelon vines would sprout effortlessly and that by the end of the summer, there would be huge watermelons all over the backyard. So all summer long, we waited and waited. But at the end of the summer, no watermelons had sprouted. The next summer, we decided to set up one of those collapsible swimming pools so we got one and we set it up in the backyard. This huge drum of corrugated iron that came up to here on me, up to my throat, with a bottom of swimming pool blue rubber. And then we turned on the hose and we began filling up the pool, which took hours. We watched in fascination as the water rose. <laughs> Filling the pool was probably the most satisfying thing about it. <laughs> Before it was half full, we jumped in and let the water rise around us. But after a few days, we barely used the swimming pool. We were on the go in the car so much, driving to the beach at Hilton Head or at Tybee or to swim in the Ogeechee River. The water in the swimming pool grew opaque, <laughs> ink black. <laughs> Leaves and branches floated across its surface, and God knows what lurked in its depths. <laughs> it was more forbidding than a swamp. No one in their right mind would have gotten into it. It remained brimful as well, replenished by the summer's many rains. All through that summer, the pool 
exercised a strange fascination over the backyard. It was tall and mysterious. The rain went across it, and its mystery was stirred, and we wondered at its depths. I would gaze at the black surface of the pool and imagine strange monsters lurking there, ghastly things, corpses. I know Helen was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I know Mother was too. Finally, one day, we destroyed the swimming pool. We attacked it gleefully, bashing down its sides and watching in delight as the black water poured out in all directions. We kept waiting for monsters to be revealed. I think we were all three convinced there was a human corpse <laughs> hidden in those waters. But there was nothing in the pool. It was empty. But at the bottom of the pool, a mystery entirely unexpected awaited us. The rubber bottom of the pool, now black with sludge, rose up in strange humps everywhere. There were things underneath the pool's bottom. What could these things be? The thought was horrifying. We all three grabbed the sides of the pool and began heaving it from the ground, peeling it up. What we saw underneath the pool was more horrifying than anything we could ever have imagined. There were watermelons everywhere, <laughs> huge watermelons, but they were white. Absolutely white, albino watermelons. <laughs> the watermelons we had planted had been growing there, trapped under the swimming pool, trapped, growing blindly in the dark. Their whiteness was as horrible as the horror of their fate. We could not bring ourselves to touch them, and the thought of slicing one open to see what it was like inside was unimaginable. How we got rid of them, I don't remember. Such was the fate of the albino watermelons. Thank you. <laughs> Aflito e só 
heard a live musical performance by Rodrigo Amarante, and before that you heard stories from Roberta Calindrez and Edgar Oliver. Uh, playing below me right now is John Coward on organ, doing a version of the Tell theme song written by a fool. Uh, Devin Church is going to be singing this version in a moment. Um, we do a version every episode, and uh, they're all produced by Gabriel Galvin, who co-produces this podcast with me. Um, so if you'd like to see the tell live, 
These are all live performances. You can go and find out when one's going on at thetellstories.com. You could also follow me at Michael Levitin on Instagram. And that's it. This is episode 12 of The Tell. It's brilliant, cause it's written